Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This afternoon, my guest is Howard Butler. So first of all, hi, Howard. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So Howard is, well, he's one of my rock and roll heroes of OSGO. He's a longtime contributor to OSGO. He's been focusing a lot recently on point cloud data management. His business, consulting business is called Hobu, which is a very clever twist on his name in case you hadn't worked that out. There's five software engineers located in Iowa City, which is in New Hampshire, not in Iowa for the geography geeks. Um, and they've been at, they claim they've been at the forefront of open source LiDAR software for over 10 years. And he's been building open source GIS software for a long time. Howard is, in my opinion, one of those people who just makes open source rock. Um, he's a doer. He's a creator. He's a volunteer. Um, and... The stuff that he does enables loads of us to stand on his broad shoulders and create the incredible products that we're all so used to. So, Howard, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Well, thanks for the wonderful introduction. I'm excited to hang out with you and talk about uh, GDAL and PDAL, or Poodle and Goodle, if, if, <laughs> if that's the way you say them. <laughs> so, what is, so let's get this right. Um, because I know in the States you guys call it Goodle or things like that. Oh, and I, I think they call it all of them. So I, 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 I think my version of the history is uh, Frank Warmerdam, uh, you know, when he started the project in uh, 1998, uh, had taken to calling it Goodle. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, of course, when you uh, see an acronym in print on a, over email or whatever, you have your own internal pronunciation of how the thing is said. And you don't really know until you like meet this person. So some of us met Frank at a conference, uh, the Map Server User Meeting Conference in uh, Minneapolis in like 2003, I think it was. And, and he's saying this phrase, poodle, and we're like, well, what the heck is this? And, and so then we kind of figured it out, and that was his pronunciation. And then Frank wor started working for Google. And so <laughs> yeah. he, he changed kind of his standing pronunciation to GDAL. And, and I think the kind of the, the, oh, the, the sort of original take of how you might read it would certainly be uh, to say it like GDAL. And uh, you'll, you'll, of course, hear it all pronunciations. So um, I think all of them are valid. Um, okay. Although my standing joke is it's always GIF, not JIF. But <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I think in Europe, we all call it GDAL, but um, maybe I'm mistaken. But it's good to hear how it all started. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with GDAL and PDAL, or even Goodle and Poodle, um, just explain what they are and what are the differences between them. So GDAL is an open source uh, software library that uh, comprises two kind of major uh, sets of functionality. The first is based on uh, raster data processing, so geospatial rasters or uh, array data. And then the second is vector data, you know, your points, lines, and polygons. And uh, this, this library came into being, like I said, in like 1998, 1999. And over the years has evolved to kind of be, oh, I call it like the brainstem of geospatial, right? It sits below 
tons of commercial and open source applications and it provides uh, data format translation. It provides basic algorithms and it provides um, kind of resource or, or foundational implementations of a number of these things. Uh, Poodle or PDAL is kind of the, the point cloud variant or the point cloud um, analog of GDAL. And it sits in the same space in the same kind of niche uh, for point cloud data. And it's, it's, it seeks to solve the same kinds of problems except that are, are relevant to that space. So geospatial, data translation, uh, application and processing of point cloud data with either bring your own algorithms to it or use some of the ones that are available. Um, and both of these tools are used by software engineers for constructing data workflows and management workflows, right? So there is some baked in kind of workflow capability in the tools, but mostly it's a bunch of Lego that you use to build your own uh, data management and data workflow. And put simply for, um, for the least technical people, every time you click in any GIS tool, you click a file open, and you're presented with a selection of types of file that you can open, that is probably using GDAL and its sibling. Very, very likely. Very, yeah. very likely. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the joke we kind of had was uh, to kind of compress all of the format misery and pain into the life of one or two developers who are GDAL <laughs> developers who kind of figure out um, what to do to, to do that translation. That translation, of course, is not a lossless thing, like format of data composes uh, more than just the bits and bytes or the content, but GDAL provides access to that content in an agnostic or abstract way. And for many applications, that's enough at what you need to be able to, to, to do. And from our perspective, perhaps as open source and open data advocates, um, it is one of the core libraries to uh, save us from vendor lock-in. Um, I mean, it's open, the thing that means that we can open tab files and shape files and um, that users of those particular software can open each other's products as well. It's it makes all, sharing data so much easier for all of us. Yeah. Ac abstract access to content. Right. With, yeah. Without regard to the to the format or the organization. I mean, that's it's, it's the explicit intent of both of those libraries. So. You've been focusing a lot of your time in the last few years on PDAL, point clouds, rather than GDAL, um, I gather. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that? What made you want to do that? Why is it important? Uh, I, had a, I had a customer base that wanted to do, uh, they wanted software for managing uh, LiDAR data, a big collection of LiDAR data with Python a uh, very, very long time ago. And I, you know, I didn't know very much about the LiDAR space, but I, I had this toolbox of open source geospatial that I, I had available to me. And so I started kind of developing tools to, to attack that. And over time, we just continued to evolve more towards what is the, the data warehousing or data management story for really large point cloud collections. And, and, you know, at the time, really large point cloud collections meant governments, paying people with really expensive scanners to put them on airplanes and fly over topography and capture that uh, really high fidelity photog uh, topography. And, you know, now LIDAR and point cloud today is you have LIDAR on your phone and, you know, people are using LIDAR to capture 
uh, you know, captured reality to do augmented reality and all of this stuff. But at the time, it was uh, mostly oriented towards uh, environmental, geospatial. And so we started developing these tools to uh, attack the problems of, you know, ter hundreds of terabytes, petabytes of LiDAR content. What the heck do you do with that? How do you um, management manage it? How do you select for only what you need? How do you extract the information you want out of it? You know, I tend to call this data very fluffy, meaning uh, an individual point in a billion point LiDAR collection has essentially zero meaning, but uh, together they have lots of meaning. And so being able right. to extract out the value or refine the value from this requires tools and techniques and formats and data organization. And, and so our consulting practice is oriented around that. And I guess that as most of this data is collected and then stored in the cloud, you also need to be able to stream it in some usable way. Um, you can't just shift petabytes of data um, from the cloud to an application in one great big chunk. Right. I mean, that's an area we've recently been working a lot on uh, is, you know, we have a, a specification that we developed, an open specification called Cloud Optimized Point Cloud, which is an adaptation of an existing uh, format that uh, a guy named Martin Eisenberg, who was you know very famous in our community, developed called LazZip. Uh, LazZip wasn't uh, inherently spatially organized, although you could do that as kind of a sidecar thing. And what we've done with LazZip and Cloud Optimized Point Cloud is uh, adapt the ability to organize that as LAZ file as a spatially organized LAZ file. And that allows an application to, you know, slurp it over a straw over HTTP, like you might do with cloud optimized GeoTIFF or something like that. Right. Um, okay. We've worked in the space and in, in, in a lot of other contexts as well, developing, you know, streaming software and, and data organization capability. And that evol evolution has, has moved us more toward this uh, cloud optimized point cloud approach. I want to talk to you more about point clouds because I think they're really exciting. And, um, and I've got to make a confession. I'll make the confession now and then we'll come back to it. But years back, I remember sitting when I was running my own geospatial consulting business and we were a classic vector geography development house, you know, building applications for public sector. And we were having a strategy meeting and... 3D came up. Um, and at the time, I confess, I couldn't see any value for our customers in 3D data. And I mean, that was long before we had LIDAR and point clouds and everything else. But so I've been catching up and um, I realize now that I was very wrong 20 years ago. And um, this is certainly going to be a big part of our geospatial futures, I think. So, uh, but we'll come back to that because I, I just want to touch on something that I think we're both really focused on. Both GDAL and PDAL are open source libraries. They're foundational technology. We've talked about that. Um, but for a long time, they were held together almost by an individual. Um, you know, I mean, I think there'd be different individuals at different times, but it's often been almost one person's effort to keep the thing above the ground. And right, it's it's a so it's an interesting kind of consulting or business model. And the and the business model that 
uh, originated GDAL, uh, Frank's original business model was, uh, it's a consulting model, right? You're, you're developing a product, which is GDAL, but the, you, you give away this product and what, you're, you, what they're paying for is your time to augment or act, uh, enhance this product. And, and so this, over time, this works great when the software product is in kind of its, uh, you know, it, initial greening out stages, right? Like as you're adding more capability and adding more features to the software, people want to add more to it, right? And so they will seek you out and hire you to, to do, do more work there. But it has this kind of inverse incentive, which is as you add more stuff to software, you introduce more bugs. And, and people don't want to pay for bugs, <laughs> obviously, but they don't want to pay for fixing bugs either, right? And so you, as your business model is evolving, you're, you're subsidizing the maintenance or the bug fixing or the ticket management or the continuous integration or the security fuzzing, well, all of that stuff, you're subsidizing that by people paying you to essentially put ornaments on the Christmas tree, right? And, mm -hmm. and eventually that kind of topples over. You can't add ornaments fast enough to not add bugs fast enough. And so the, the business model, uh, that particular business model kind of tops out. And so uh, both with GDAL and, and PDAL to a lesser degree, at least at this point, um, it makes it very difficult to, to um, entice folks to pay for the, the commons or the um, its position of that software library in a larger ecosystem. Like people don't, organizations don't want to pay for that because it's ether, right? They, it's there. They Why would they have to do that? Um, but eventually, if, if that person or those persons or that organization isn't doing that job, um, that, that software library's value that it creates for everyone um, starts to fall away. And it starts to actually create inverse value for people because the cost of those bugs or the cost of... Uh, of things not working together properly, or um, somebody was careless with an upgrade, um, you know, that introduces a lot of friction for every for all of the software that's using it. And it, and also, I mean, you just, you know, if a project runs for long enough, it accumulates technical debt. Tons of it, uh, right? And at some stage, you have to bite the bullet, and you have to do the work to resolve some of that technical debt, maybe reduce your dependencies on other components that you're using that have a way out of support or have got their own vulnerabilities. Um, and all of that costs money. So GDAL, if I remember correctly, and we're going back about two years ago now, the barn race. Yeah, there was, there was kind of two efforts. Um, so the first one was something I called the barn raising um, mostly as a, as a marketing term to try to get people to, uh, you know, uh, chip in. So, well, first of all, Howard, for the non-Americans amongst the audience, which is many, can you even explain what a barn raise is? So in, uh, in uh, North American Amish, uh, um, I guess, culture, there, there's this uh, phenomenon where, you know, an individual doesn't build the barn, everybody shows up, um, the, the individual attracts the materials and the, everybody shows up to, to actually build, build the barn and provide their labor to do so. And, um, you know, what we were looking for was kind of actually the opposite of that. We needed the resources. Um, we had, we had a barn raiser who uh, at the time, of course, was Evan Ruhl, but, uh, um, you know, we wanted to attract resources to attack, 
some of these structural um, technical debt that you would you might say of uh, Proj uh, and GDAL and LibGeoTIFF. And so these these libraries kind of sit really, really low level and they provide the geo part of, of geo, right? So coordinate systems, coordinate reprojection, geodetics, all this stuff. And uh, what prompted me to kind of head that direction was, uh, you know, we were getting in a position where the open source, that open source ecosystem didn't have true proper geodetic capability. I mean, you could reproject coordinate systems, but it, to, you know, to being, to do, datums and geoids and models, or, you know, time fixed models and all of this stuff, like there was more capability that needed to happen. And in, in where I was working, not having that capability was grounds to get disqualified. So your software, your open source stack of software potentially could get disqualified because it didn't meet the, the criteria that it needed to do. So not everyone needs this capability, but we certainly had need for it. And it was too big of a lift to, uh, for one organization to go and spend essentially a year worth of effort across all of these projects over multiple releases um, to, to do this in such a way that you don't disrupt everybody, right? You don't want to break everyone's usage of the software. You want to do it with care. And so the barn raising was kind of the first attempt. And so uh, what we did is we uh, sought out, you know, organizations that we knew either had supported GDAL in the past through consulting you know, direct consulting or other um, resources and said, you know, hey, we're trying to uh, solicit funds to attack this kind of structural problem. You know, maybe it's a problem for you or maybe not, but we hope you're um, enthusiastic with us. And we were able to attract, I think, about $140,000, which at the time for us, that seemed like a really great number. And, um, and especially to attack uh, capability that wasn't more Christmas tree ornaments, right? It was, it was a structural sort of thing. And then, um, and that included some some big names, didn't it? Yeah, we had Safe Software, FME. There's a whole list of folks that yeah. uh, chimed in with some, you know, somewhat surprising and significant resources. And um, part of that, uh, part of the interest there was uh, being able to do the coordinate system description stuff. So at the time, it was called something called Well Known Text Two. It was a specification, is a specification from OGC. That, that specification didn't have wide implementations. And part of the reason for not having wide implementations is Proj and GDAL had kind of sucked up all the oxygen of people using well-known text and coordinate system description. And so not having that capability in those libraries kind of was like a big uh, blocker for the industry. And so those organizations supported that in, in some ways just so that they could get uh, good interop with all, all of the GDAL and Proj using software. Right. So... You did the barn raise. You raised, by open source standards, a bucket load of money, uh, which funded fixing the infrastructure, so to speak, of the GDAL project. Um, but all that would have done, unless I'm mistaken, is have moved the dial forwards by a decade, but the same problem would be looming in a couple of years' time unless you did something else. And then I think you did something else to the funding. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so after the barn raising, you know, Evan Ruolt, who was working on GDAL, you know, he started to, to at least chat with me a little bit about some of kind of the deficiencies of the business model, right? Which is, I have to, 
as a, as a proprietor of this library, and Evan was kind of the, the main, it certainly is still the, the main proprietor of the library. He's the person you would naturally go to, to I want to get something added or done in GDAL. And, and the, 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 the efficiency of the business model is this phenomena of, of I can't add more features to subsidized maintenance. And, and, but the, the bulk of the work that needs to be done, the time that needs to be put into the library is maintenance. And, and so Evan was, you know, kind of uh, flailing about a little bit of, of how to kind of reconcile this or fix this. And, you know, I saw this and, and a couple of observations. One, it takes the same amount of effort to raise $5,000 as it does to raise $50,000, certainly in the tech realm, right? Raising that kind of money means navigating large organizations and getting into their budgets. And um, so whatever the number is, um, the hard part of that is actually getting into those organizations and making the pitch to them that this is important. And so I, I felt that, well, if, if GDAL could raise resources to fund the, the maintenance, the O&M tail of what is GDAL, meaning uh, bug fixing, um, operating continuous integration, um, interacting with the community, um, to help them with various things, and then coordinating the software development of these kind of related group of projects so that they all work together, so that they're all released smoothly, so that they are compatible with each other. It, if there's common support for, for that side of the, of the activities so that this, this kind of feature development business model isn't have to sit there to, to, to subsidize that, I think the community would benefit a lot and the software would be better because it, uh, you know, it wouldn't accumulate technical debt as fast. It could pay down some of this debt that it's accumulated over 20 years. And so um, the other sort of observation I had as part of the initial barn raising was it's extremely difficult to raise money out of government organizations. They have lots of rules. Um, they don't want to give money to anything that doesn't have a statement of work and a deliverable attached to it. So like you can't, it's very difficult to go to uh, some sort of a agency and say, hey, we want to add software capability to GDAL or maintain it or whatever. That, that's just not a pitch that's going to land. But it was a pitch that land to Facebook and Google and Amazon and Esri and all of these organizations that are using GDAL often in a cloud scenario to process, manage, and organize geospatial content they need this software to continue to work well, to continue to work well, and to you know what I had called uh, provide the interoperability substrate uh, for uh, geospatial content. And so that was a pitch that you know we crafted and and started working um, with these organizations to make identifying developers in these organizations who could make that to. Um, people who had control over purse strings and go, hey, it's in our interest to make sure that this moves forward, works well, and and works for us and works for the larger ecosystem that uh, we, you know, we can support with uh, relatively a much lower amount of money. And so it took some time to get that snowball going. Um, but once we uh, were able to, to get some initial um, buy-in from these organizations, we were able to raise um, the initial goal was $250,000 per year times three years. And so we, you know, the idea was not just a short, quick burst. It was a longer sort of sustainment so that 
the project and its kind of related projects could make choices that would have uh, longer timelines and provide smoother transitions so that if any of the technology development that was going on um, didn't have to happen at once abruptly and break people. And that, that was a, a pitch that landed. I think right now we're at something close to $320,000 a year, um, which is not the resource level that GDAL currently consumes, and which is great. Although, um, you know, we're starting to look at what are the, what are the other libraries that GDAL depends on? So one of the things we recently did was uh, uh, grant some of that money down to a library called GEOS, which is the, the geometry algebra library that sits underneath PostGIS and GDAL and everybody for, for doing operations that way. And there'll probably be some more of that as well. Um, of course, we're always looking for uh, engineers to come in and participate in the project and there's resources for doing some of that too. Um, that wasn't there before for doing the kinds of tasks that otherwise would have just been, um, you know, what we call what had called classically maintenance, which is not a particularly good term, but it's it's the kind of stuff that needs to happen for the software to continue to move forward um, with, with without breaking. Just over time, the software rots. You know, like things, yeah. it, the externalities change, and and so the software has to continue to adapt and move forward. So. I, th I mean, for me, I've just got to pause. And this is a shout out for all of my friends in the open source geo community. You should be listening to what Howard and the team at GDAL did because they've put their project on a long-term sustainable footing that doesn't depend on volunteer burnout to keep feeding it. Um, and I think that's the key point, you know, that this... This library is foundational. Um, there's no competitive advantage to one company from having a library that facilitates interoperability if nobody else has got it. Everybody needs to have it. It's a classic case for open source, and it needs to be done properly. It's not something that committed volunteers should be doing at the weekend when they should be playing with their children or going out and relaxing. It's something that needs to be done as a day job for people. And what you've done is set it up in a way that it can be done properly. And I think it's fantastic. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I keep components of it for us were structurally uh, for the United States based companies, they needed to be able to make a donation to a 503 501c3, which is a uh, you know tax deductible nonprofit, like that's always been kind of a, a, a component, and so there's a there's one of those called NumFocus, which is much more um, widely known in you know Python, Py, mm -hmm. uh, uh, NumPy, all of the kind of that realm, and so you know we partnered with them to for them to provide the administrative support and capability of this funding, so a place to put this these resources and administer them through their rules that they had already developed. So, you know, we weren't treading or we weren't uh, blazing any new trail there. And also we got some um, sort of support just because those organizations that we were making this funding pitch to had familiarity with that organization as well. So it, we weren't, we were just another, an, another piece, which is, oh, we're doing the geo piece of this larger thing that they had supported. So um, we weren't starting completely from scratch. We weren't selling a completely new kind of open open source or open source organization. 
um, where you're selling two things, right? You have to sell the organization and you have to sell the project itself, right? And in our fundraising fundraising case for this, we were selling just GDAL essentially. And that provided us a big advantage. Well, all power to you and the team that did this. Let's let's just take this conversation because um, we've talking about the sustainability of open source and you've talked about how how you did that with GDAL to a large extent. But um, I followed some conversations with you about um, the difference between free software and free support. And that's sort of reverting back to the traditional open source model, isn't it? That um, we gave the software away, but um, had a business model based around consulting. Um, But often we hear people complaining that... um, they're not getting instant response when they need support on free software, which always makes me chuckle. Um. Well, I, I mean, maybe part of that is just society today expects, you know, instant gratification and, um, you know, you can reach out and touch as, as quick as you can think about a person, you can reach out and touch them essentially without intermediation. So um, some of it is that uh, I, th- I think that, the model where a phenomenon I've seen in, in my activity with open source software is, oh, it, it's very me centric, right? The, my problem is very important to me and I'm trying to solve my problem and I'm using your tools to solve it. And you're, you, the, 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 the royal you needs to tell me how I'm supposed to do that. Right. Like, and, and, and so there's kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's a difficult kind of chasm for, for people to kind of jump where they're responsible for that themselves in open source software. And not everybody kind of gets that. I mean, most participants do, right? Like we'll interact with the community and, 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 and participate in a way where, um, you know, the, the distinction between my problem and our problem is, is made. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's sometimes there's an expectation of, you know, I want, I, I, I need this thing to do my job and, you know, you're not providing a binary or you're not providing an answer to, on Stack Overflow to, to, to my question as an impediment for me um, achieving my goals. And, you know, that, that creates a frustration because um, the, the opportunity to get that resolved is either that person spends a bunch of time themselves figuring it out or they hire somebody um, to, to guide them and help support them, or alternatively, they badger that person into giving them the answer that they need so they can go on and move forward. And so you see that third phenomenon sometimes in the community, and it creates a, uh, a bit of toxicity from time to time. I think it also should be noted that um, having worked for protri- proprietary software companies in the past, there is absolutely no guarantee that paying for a support contract with a proprietary company will actually get you a speedy resolution to a problem. I've seen bugs in software that have lasted for six months, 12 months, um, just because fixing them has to fit in with a release schedule that the software company has, for example. You know, so um, it's not as if it's not just about free software, though it does amaze me that people will use open source software in mission critical projects and then refuse to pay 
somebody to provide them with a support channel or to funnel some money back to the developers of that project to enable them to fix bugs and things like that. I mean, it's just beyond belief for me. And I did pitch an idea in the UK to the clients of a company that I consult with, which was just do a quick sum and calculate how much you save using open source software compared to purchasing proprietary licenses. Make, you know, be as conservative as you like in estimating your savings and then just say, I'm going to donate a small percentage, 2.5% or 5% of my savings to open source projects. You know, if everybody just got in the habit of saying, yeah, it's free and I'm going to donate something. It's like, um, you know, for all of us who use... I don't know, whatever free software tool it is that you've downloaded and use quite frequently, and there's a donate button. How shit is it to not press the donate button and send a few dollars to the guy who's developed that piece of software? You know, I mean, why not just do the right thing and help him to keep going? You know, with the, with our fundraising for GDAW, I guess I, I had a couple points I, I would make about that. One is... Um, it, it is societally not great to be seen as a beggar. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is to be publicly begging for money is, is you, you are judged. Right. And so for a project to have to go out and publicly beg for money is like, uh, well, they have to beg for money. Something must be wrong. So that's kind of one, one piece of it. And the other is like these organizations that we are pitching to the, the, it, the, to, to, to describe it as an incentive for the public good is uh, doesn't land, right? Because the, the, the organization is it's, it's a corporation, right? Like they make yeah. decisions as individuals. To describe it as it is in your corporate interest to support this for these sustainability of this for these reasons, which directly impact your ability to achieve your, your goals, that pitch lands. And so... Um, you know the the fundraising that we did certainly at the beginning was private it was email it was navigating organizations so as we were not seen to be publicly begging also so that we could kind of refine and hone that pitch uh to each one of these organizations that might have different uh circumstances internally that they they need to navigate to to be successful with it I think organizations want to pay for support for this kind of stuff. Many of them do, but they don't really know how they can approach it in a way that um, doesn't take effort on their part. I mean, it's just uh, putting resources somewhere. Like, I mean, it needs to be easy, um, but they also, they want to be able to trust an organization or an individual to, to do the work, right? They don't want to have to be involved with the day-to-day operation right. tickets and bugs and, and uh, tests and Google security fuzzing and all of the stuff that corresponds to whatever maintenance of a, a, a huge library like GDAL is. And I'm guessing in some way that the Log4J2 crisis back end of last year will have done projects like GDAL a lot of good in a strange way because people realize that, you know, this stuff is pretty fundamental. It's baked into our operations, and actually, it causes a shitload of trouble if 
um, we discover major security vulnerabilities or something and um, better to support them and prevent that than have to resolve it. I think I, in the U.S., I think you've, the log4j thing has shown up in a couple of interesting spots. One is the U.S. federal government has recognized that, hey, this is a, this is a vector and a risk for us but it's one we can attack and, and, and manage with resources and seeing open source uh, capability, open source software as infrastructure, like roads and bridges, instead of discriminating um, uh, something that a, an individual company uh, sells as proprietary or as a product um, kind of changes the, the orientation of how a federal government or EU federal government might resource things. And so identification of those libraries and those softwares like Log4j or GDAL or GeoTools or whoever it's based on is really important so that um, there's identification of which ones are actually systemic risk and which ones are, you know, somebody's pet project that they did. Um, and sometimes they're both the same, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, so, Howard, um, we said we were going to talk for half an hour and we've whizzed past that. Um I'm looking at my notes and we've got so much more to talk about. We were going to talk about the metaverse. We were going to talk about um, VC-based open source and Renaissance art benefactor models. We just can't do it all this afternoon. So what I'm going to do is before I wrap up, I'm going to do something a bit naughty and on air, I'm going to say, will you come back for a second conversation with me about some of these exciting things that we were going to talk about? Sure, I'd love to. Um, Great. Okay, so, so let's call this part one. Right. And let's bring part one to an elegant close by saying goodbye. Um, people want to get in touch with you. What's the best way to be in touch with you? Uh, Howard Butler on Twitter is the easiest way to reach me. Um, if you go to our website at hobo.co, you'll find my email and stuff like that. Right. So I've got a link to your company in our, the links to the episode. I've also got links to the Poodle and Goodle websites uh, for people who want to go and find out more about those tools. Um, I'll be in touch with you straight after this podcast, Howard, to set a date for us to have part two of our conversation. In the meantime, thanks for being a fantastic guest. It's been lovely talking to you and goodbye to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, you can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is Geomob. Um, you can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. Um, you can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And, of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and, of course, seeing you at a future Geomob event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.